Good morning. It's good to see you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, you might take distractions from us and you might enable each one of us to hear your voice, that understanding why, why you have caused this to be written for us and how our lives ought to be shaped by it, we might live as your faithful people. And all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, last week while we slept, the world changed. The second Elizabethan era has ended and one of the modern world's greatest examples of tireless service is gone. And you don't have to be an ardent monarchist to know how significant this is. The death of a mother, grandmother and great-grandmother, of course. The death of a head of state who stayed above the politics and self-interest to provide a point of continuity amidst decades of change. And as I said, an example of the most extraordinary service, a whole life devoted to serving her people in Britain and throughout the Commonwealth. But above all else, the home call of one who trusted the Lord Jesus, sought to follow the Lord Jesus, and wasn't afraid to speak of the Lord Jesus. There are many things, many significant things, that will happen in your lifetime. But one of them most certainly will remain the death of Queen Elizabeth II. It is a landmark event, and we have much to thank God for in her. It's almost ridiculous for me to point out that not every leader is like that. Self-interest is much more common than self-sacrifice. Corruption on a small or on a large scale is more common than integrity. Blaming others is more common than acknowledging your own fault, bearing the blame for what you've done or allowed to be done. We've seen that recently in the Australian Parliament, haven't we? And in the British Parliament as well. And, but then we've got to realise that that's not just something which characterises our leaders or those in the public eye, it's something common in us. Blame shifting is something each one of us is quite practised in. It enables us to live with ourselves. It enables us to cope. Like you, I suspect, uh, I don't like accepting blame. I'd rather it be located somewhere else. It's something I inherited from my parents, their parents, all the way back to my very first ancestors. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. But then I've just done it again myself, haven't I? The problem with not accepting the blame is that without doing that, I won't really repent, will I? After all, I won't believe I need to since it's someone else's fault, someone else's to blame. If my wife is the one to blame for the argument we've had, then I don't really need to change anything. I don't really need to repent, she does. If my senior minister is the problem, if he's the one to blame for the tension between us, then I don't really need to change. There's no decision for me to make. The one that needs to change is him. It is important to face up to blame 
and to take the appropriate action in the light of it, which is why I think Matthew takes time to give us the details about Jesus' trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in Matthew 27. You see, throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been attempts to shift the blame when it comes to Jesus' death, why it was necessary, why it happened, who engineered it. The Jews have been blamed for Jesus' death, Christ killers and pogroms, persecutions, attempts at genocide have all been justified by an appeal to the words in the passage that we'll be reading this morning, taken out of context, of course. The Romans, personified by Pontius Pilate, have been blamed for Jesus' death. Corrupt government, institutional brutality, they're to blame. But Matthew wants you to look more deeply than that. And God wants us to face the terrifying reality that the blame might just lie somewhere else. And there's a decision each one of us need to make. Because only then will you see hope. The brilliant hope that might not be so obvious at first, but which changes everything. So would you turn with me to Matthew 27, if you haven't already, and let me read from verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You said it. But when the chief priests and elders accused him, he said nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he did not answer even a single word, so that the governor was greatly astonished. The governor had established a practice or a custom of releasing one prisoner to the crowd whom they chose. At that time, he had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate asked them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over out of envy. What's more, while he was seated on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered greatly today in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate asked them, then what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the louder, let him be crucified. Pilate, seeing that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was brewing, took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. See to it yourselves. And all the people said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and having flogged Jesus, he handed him over in order to be crucified. This morning, let's look at this passage in three parts before asking ourselves the question, who is to blame? We'll look at the silence of the king, the substitution of the criminal, and the spinelessness of the governor. Firstly, the silence of the king. You'll remember uh, from last week that immediately before this, there occurred the three little trials. The trial of Jesus before Caiaphas, which was really the trial of Caiaphas, in the high priest's residence in the dark of night, 
the trial of Peter out in the courtyard amongst the servants, still at night, and the trial of Judas that ended in his suicide. But now we come to the main event. All the rest was a preliminary in some sense. We finished off, you might remember last time, with they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. They had to take him to Pilate because they knew they couldn't get rid of him publicly in a way that exposed him as the charlatan they believed him to be on their own. After all, Judah, uh, Judea was occupied territory. It was a province of the empire. In this place, only the Romans could decide matters of life and death. So if they were to get rid of Jesus, then the Romans must do it. Pilate must do it. So they took him to Pilate. In the early hours of that Friday, Jesus stood before the governor. And the first question that Pilate asked him shows how the priests and the elders had recast the charges against Jesus to attract the attention of the Romans. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked? What had begun as a religious charge, blasphemy, in the previous trial, had been turned into a political charge, treason, for this one. The Jewish leaders knew Pilate would not be interested in charges of blasphemy, but if someone was claiming to be a king, if someone was potentially a rival to Caesar, he'd have to do something about that. I'm sure you noticed as the passage was read, the times Jesus spoke and the times he refused to speak. He answered Pilate's question, but he would not defend himself against the accusations of the Jewish leaders. He refused to defend himself. He was not trying to get out of this. But he did take the opportunity to confess his own royal authority before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. The very way he asked the question showed he did not believe it. Surely not. Not you. Not this unimpressive figure standing in front of him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gave the same answer he'd given when he was put under oath by the high priests hours before. You said it. In other words, your words are true even if the meaning you attach to them isn't. Paul would later write to Timothy that in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, Christ Jesus made the good confession. Jesus was not defending himself, but rather confessing, confessing his own royal authority before Pilate. But if we want more detail on that confession, we need to look at John's account. So you are a king then? Pilate asked. And Jesus replied, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. My kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king. Not the kind of king you're thinking of, but yes, I am a king. What is fascinating is that Pilate, <coughs> excuse me, Pilate does not seem at all phased by Jesus' um, answer at this point. Truth? What is truth, he says. It may be that he already determined that Jesus wasn't as dangerous as the high priest had presented him to be, that he wasn't really a threat. Jesus made that confession before Pilate, the great representative of the nations, 
But when the Jews put their charges on the table, when they were accusing him of one thing after another and seeking to build a convincing case that he really was a threat to the state, he said nothing, not even a word. As Isaiah had put it centuries before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as we've seen throughout Matthew's Gospel, it is God's ancient plan which is driving everything that happens. Nothing is outside of his control and everything is in accordance with the Scriptures. But it did stun Pilate. Can't you hear how much they're accusing you of? It's madness. Why would you keep quiet when they're saying these things, all these many things? But Jesus would not say a word in his defence. And it's clear that Pilate, despite what you might expect, did not consider Jesus' silence to be a sign of guilt, but rather something to wonder at. Why wouldn't he defend himself? And what happened during that interrogation has been a source of wonder ever since. John Calvin once wrote, Christ kept silence to be our spokesman now and by his pleading to free us of our guilt. He kept silence that we might be able to boast that we are justified by faith. He did not defend himself. As ludicrous as the charges were that they levelled against him, so that in due course he might defend us, pleading his own death in the face of charges not so ludicrous levelled at us. The silence of the king, not the sad, eerie silence of that uh, vigil in Westminster Hall earlier this week, but the silence of one determined to fulfil the plan of our salvation. Well, the middle of this passage brings us to the strange substitution of Jesus and the criminal Barabbas. We know from the way the story continues after this that the Romans had already prepared three crosses for the executions that day. Perhaps a third of them had been for Barabbas. He was, the other Gospels tell us, not simply a thief, but an insurrectionist. He was, Matthew made clear, well-known, notorious, Yet Pilate, the governor, had established a practice of releasing one prisoner to keep the peace in Jerusalem during the time of the festival, when the city was overrun with pilgrims. And with a brute like Pontius Pilate as governor, things always looked like they might flare up at any point, and you did what you could to keep the peace. But Matthew gives us another reason why Pilate was setting a choice before the people at just this moment. Did you notice it in verse 18? For he knew that they handed him over because of envy. Pilate might have been malicious. He showed that time and time again the way he treated the occupied people of Judea. Remember the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices? But he'd been at this game for some time. He understood how it was played. He knew self-interest and revenge and ugly opportunism when he saw it. He knew they handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew, he knew very well that Jesus was innocent. Twice in these verses, Jesus' innocence is declared, first by his wife in that urgent little message, 
telling him to get out of this, have nothing to do with this. She describes Jesus as that righteous man in verse 19. Pilate himself seemed troubled by the crowd's demand that he crucify Jesus. Why? What evil has he done? He asked in verse 23. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but there is never the slightest suggestion that Barabbas was innocent. The innocent or the patently guilty. And that substitution portrays for us in vivid colours the reality at the heart of all of this the innocent in the place of the guilty. As Peter would write, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he wasn't talking about Barabbas. So far, Matthew has made clear that the Jewish religious leaders bear the blame for Jesus' death, but then so too do the crowds baying for his blood following the lead of the chief priests and elders to demand the release of Barabbas and the destruction of Jesus. But he also makes clear that the nations, Pilate the governor and those who do his dirty work, the nations are implicated too. They too are to blame. And at first glance, the portrait of Pilate in these verses seems strange. I've already mentioned he had a reputation for atrocity. Time and again, he provoked the Jews with a high hand. He could do whatever he wanted. He was far away from Rome. He was in the sticks. No one would ever care. But we know from other sources that at this particular moment, Pilate was more vulnerable than he had been before. News of his cruelty and incompetence had reached Rome and his great advocate there, a man named Sayanus, had recently fallen from favour. Before too long, Pilate would overstep the mark again and he'd be recalled to Rome, he would only survive because the emperor died before he got there. So perhaps at this moment, Pilate just could not afford a major disturbance in Jerusalem during the festival. Pontius Pilate was no coward, but on this particular day, he is spineless. He knew that Jesus was handed over because the chief priests and elders were settling a score. There was no case against Jesus, He was not the threat to Rome you tried to make him out to be. Perhaps his own presentation of Barabbas alongside Jesus was one more feeble attempt to highlight Jesus' innocence to the crowds who, after all, had been celebrating his entrance into the city just days before. But every confrontation with Jesus must end with a decision for or against him. There is no middle ground. And Pilate's pathetic attempt to avoid a decision and stand in the middle ends up being a decision against Jesus. Which one do you want, he asked the crowd. Say to it yourselves, he says at the end. He lacked the courage to do what he knew was right. What he would do that day was not done out of a desire for justice, but in order to keep the crowds calm to avoid a riot. And once again, that's not all that unfamiliar to us, is it? Leaders not standing resolutely for what's right, but bending to accommodate to the loudest voices. The Jewish leaders, the crowds, the nations in the person of Pilate, everyone connected with Jesus' death is guilty. Everyone connected with Jesus' death is to blame. But there's one last little thing to notice. Did you notice the change of language in verse 25? 
when the, those infamous words were uttered, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Throughout these verses, Pilate has had his eye on the crowd. His Passover amnesty, if we're going to call it that, was for the benefit of the crowd, in verse 15. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, in verse 20. Pilate washed his hands in front of the crowd in verse 24, but look again at verse 25. Who is it that says, his blood be upon us and upon our children? It is the people. Why change to that word at this crucial point? It's not an especially, especially technical word. It's not as if every time it occurs it has a special meaning. But Matthew makes a deliberate change at this point. And I don't think we're meant to gloss it over. When Christ suffered once for sins, as Peter put it, the righteous for the unrighteous, it was not just for Barabbas. It was not just Barabbas he was talking about. It was those who once were not a people, but now have become the people of God. It's the very people for whom Christ died, who cried out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. See, we are implicated too. We share the blame. We can't just stand at a distance and say, oh, it was the Jews who did it, or it was the corrupt leadership that did it, or it was the imperialistic colonising Romans that did it. We too are to blame. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It's important that we don't try to shift the blame at this point so that we realise with full force that we too need to repent. Every confrontation with Jesus must end with a decision for or against him. And none of us can avoid that, no matter how clever we try to be. Peter made that point forcefully when he stood in Solomon's portico some weeks after the resurrection. He reminded those people, some of them might have been there on that day before Pilate and others would not, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And he went on to call them to repentance. Jesus was silent he did not defend himself so that our salvation might be accomplished. The substitution that lies at the heart of what he did was pictured most graphically as Barabbas was released, but Jesus was handed over to be crucified. The governor's refusal to execute justice and stand for what he knew was right was pathetic, but his perversity and weakness did not overthrow God's plan. It was part of God's plan. But in the end, we are not just observers pointing the finger at each of them from a distance. We too are implicated. We need to take that seriously. We too need to repent of our role in all of this. It was necessary because the corruption, weakness and unrighteousness is in me. And when we see that, and when we cry out for forgiveness and repent of that, we discover that the blood poured out on the cross, Jesus' blood, does not in the end condemn us. 
It is the way he saves us. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his faithfulness and for his great confession standing before Pilate. We thank you for his blood that was shed. And we thank you that it does not condemn us, but save us. Thank you for that in Jesus' name.